Hello and welcome to The Widow Podcast. I am your host, Karen Sutton, The Widow Coach. I am a widow, a mum, a health coach, a life coach and grief coach. I want to help you see that you really can create something truly meaningful after loss. You have everything you need within you and I want to help you find it so you can see how capable and amazing you really are. Helping you find a more positive way through your grief. Welcome back to the Widow Podcast again. This week, I have got a lovely lady joining us, um, Judith Peterson, all the way from America. Um, Judy is the founder of Hearts of Hope, the art of healing, and just such a lovely lady with such an incredible story and has achieved so much. So Judy, thank you so much for coming along and joining us today for this, this conversation. Karen, I love speaking with you. This is a great opportunity. Thank you for having me. Oh, bless you. Thank you. So I guess, you, you know, I always ask my, my guests to, to kind of start off really with their story, because there's always a backstory as to, to what leads us to these places in our lives, isn't there? So yes. yeah, do you want to share your story with us? Sure. It, uh, it was a story that, uh, that you know, that uh, I didn't realize was going to be the story uh, in, in my uh, younger years as a young wife. My husband had a severe heart attack. He was, we, we had high hopes. He, you know, he went immediately to the hospital. He was being treated and we had high hopes that this was just gonna be a blip on the radar screen. But the high hopes after, after about five days, I guess, did, you know, went in a whole different direction. And after 10 days with life support and so on, he did not make it. And so the story begins there, even though I always like to think the story begins four years later because life went on, you know, as a, as a widow and as a young person, I was engaged. I was working. I was busy. There were, there were a lot of things going on and it, it's different now a little, but back then it was kind of, okay, just, you know, get back into the swing of things. And in many, many ways, that was a comfort. And so I just threw myself right back into work, threw myself right back into, um, you know, uh, communicating with my coworkers and my friends. But the grieving part was done quietly, was done privately. And, mm -hmm. and it was not that I didn't seek services, because I can tell you that every single night I would get on the internet and look for a course or a book or something that might help. And fortunately, I had wonderful friends, a couple of friends that showed up out of nowhere, and then family. And so that did help. But when I, you know, the public life, or I guess my working life, it didn't look different because that was the expectation. Mm -hmm. So four years later, life went on. Actually, life went in remarkable directions. I found myself in a relationship with a man that I am sure was sent by God or maybe my late husband. Oh. And it's just, it was just a fit, continues to be. And Life went on in a happy direction, in a positive direction. And so it was nearly four years to the day later that I opened a small, you know, small town newspaper where we live. And there was a two line ad that said, hospice volunteer wanted, call this number. It was like, I, I worked in a corporate, I worked in corporate finance. It was not that 
you know, I was going to be a social worker. It was like a light bulb went off and that was it. That was it. And nothing has changed since that day. So I, I took that uh, desire and that drive and I called this hospice agency, which I thought was a, just a building that you went to. I had no idea that hospice was a, was a concept and was, was a practice and was a family uh, oriented system. I had no idea. But I called the building and I called three times and I'm sure that they were getting sick of hearing my voicemail because they finally called me back and that was it. So I went for a 36 hour class, could not get enough. By the second session, I was going to work there. That was in my head. No matter what it took, I was going to work there. And lo and behold, I did. And so I started as a hospice volunteer. I immediately enrolled in the master's program for social work because that's what I wanted to do. I did both at the same time. They, you know, they ultimately got sick of me saying, do you have any jobs? And gave me one as the volunteer coordinator. And I did that as I finished school. And that was the beginning of my Hearts of Hope journey. As I met with people and it was, um, it was extraordinary to work with families where a loved one had been given a terminal diagnosis. Extraordinary in so many ways. And I would say that, you know, the, uh, you know, the thing that you would probably, I guess, expect would be the courage of the patients that we met. And there was that. But what strikes me maybe more were the family members, because I would, you know, as a, as a hospice worker, you go into the homes of people and I would go into a home and it could sometimes be a little bit chaotic. Um, and often caregivers were, uh, you know, ranging from a little bit to a lot frazzled and tired and exhausted. And, and they would almost to a person say to me, you're seeing me at my worst. And I would look around and I would see the care that they were giving to their loved ones. And I would see the hours they were putting in, in each day. And I would think to myself, that is absolutely not true. I am seeing you at your best. This is what, if we aspire to be good human beings with, humanity that we all crave and, and know that we innately have, this is it. And so to experience that was for me life altering. And then to apply that to the field where loss and grief, you know, they're existing even in the framework before someone has died. Mm-hmm. And to see that and to see people's reactions to that and to be at this, actually, I always think this is a benefit. I had the benefit of being in the educational setting and learning the theory as I was in the field Mm. and putting everything directly from the classroom to the home. Mm. And that was an amazing benefit. And so that's kind of the backstory. It It was my sweet dentist who loved to cook and dance. And I can tell you there was a radio program on in, uh, in our town and Every Saturday morning, this would come on and we would dance <laughs> Saturday morning. And so, you know, that was, that was the life that ended to open the door to the life that, began, that began. And that life still exists and becomes richer because of the work that I get the privilege to do. So maybe that's a long answer to a short question, but that is the story. That, that's amazing, isn't it, Judy? You know, just, and even that four years later, 
that you you saw that advert in the paper and it wasn't something you were necessarily looking for either was it that you weren't kind of just reading the paper (laughs) yeah and it's really and and I think it's it like you say it's just interesting sometimes I think and I I know you'd kind of met somebody else and and your life was going in in a in a different direction at that point as, as well but I think you know sometimes when our, our lives are shattered and our person dies and all of a sudden it's that well what now what's going to happen next and and how am I going to work through this and what's my life going to look like and we want the answers don't we immediately you know because the oh, unknown yes. is scary um but actually it's that patience and that time and and almost trusting in the universe and which I know sounds strange because when someone you love has died, <laughs> you know, our faith is, is sometimes questioned, isn't it? Whatever your, your, your faith is, mm-hmm. whatever you want to believe in and to say to people, you know, trust in the universe or, or God or what, you know, whatever it is yeah. that you, you All the things have. that people say that aren't think, quite on the mark. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But I think there's a, there's something in it that, that, that you know, that what's, is right for you will come to you at the right time in your life when you're ready to see it and and take the opportunity and and explore different possibilities and it just takes you down the right path and it can be one that takes you completely by surprise as well because you weren't expecting it you weren't looking sure. for it and I think that's what's so lovely for you because it was because your your late husband died in 1994 is that right yes. and then this was in 1998 that you kind yes. of then went on to do the hospice work which I, I think is is just fantastic work isn't it you know and I love what you said when people say to you you're seeing me at my worst and and it's mm-hmm. like do you know what actually you know for doing what you're doing and and caring for your person as you are this is you at your absolute best because as heartbreaking and and as devastating as it is to care for somebody in those moments it it takes a lot of love and courage doesn't it certainly does there's one man in particular that i remember and you know I, i i was a scheduled family visit so people always knew i was coming and this one man he lived on a, in a two-story home. So his wife was in bed upstairs and he said, and I watched it actually, he, he told me about it and then I got to see it. And uh, he said, you know, I feel so bad because she'll call me for something. And the whole way up those stairs, I'll be going to respond to that grumbling and cursing and mad and, and not happy. And, but then I saw it because this was what he expressed. And I kind of saw it and he said, oh, right in the middle of our conversation, here we go, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And as, you know, he was walking up the stairs, kind of grumbly, but I heard him as he entered the room and he said, what can I get for you, honey? Oh. And I thought, this is it, this mm-hmm. is it. That's and it. so it was that privilege of being invited into the homes of people mm-hmm. and being able to see the intimacy of people's lives at that level, at that time, wow. was something that most people mm-hmm. never really understand or um to experience you know they'll they'll do it if they have the opportunity and I Mm. did and it was quite remarkable it is remarkable it is and you know my husband Simon died suddenly I I didn't have to nurse him through an illness but I know through my my nursing background um, you know I worked in hospitals and in the community 
and you know supporting somebody end of life um and and being that person for them god you, you know it's it's something that you can't explain to somebody um what it entails and and I think there's there's a lot of trauma in the caregiving side of things as well for people that often goes untended to because you know where do you turn to where do you go and and where do you find that support and and people that understand it because it involves so much doesn't it yes it involves and it's almost as though a caregiver feels not worthy mm. of reaching out for care mm. and you know because their loved one is dying and yes. they are the ones who need the care and they are the ones that need the attention but um i believe i believe you hit the nail on the head saying there's an aspect of trauma to this because it's it's an unrecognized kind of disenfranchised type of, yes. of um, occurrence or mm. you know situation where these people are laying this on themselves inadvertently they yeah. you know, nobody would say good I want to be traumatized but mm. but they are because they're disallowing their own needs mm. for care and yeah and it's, that again I think is a very human response the care goes to the one that obviously yes yes what happens yeah absolutely that you know and and it's almost that that shame around it isn't it kind of well I need some care too but how can I possibly ask for it when my person's dying like and and who do you talk to about all the things you have to do and and go through because yes you know you think oh nobody's going to want to listen to this or hear this and and you know even if you're not with your person because you need that respite there's then again that guilt and that shame I should be with them and Yes, you know that the, the the torture that we sort of place on yeah. ourselves. I believe that's true. Mm. Even to even to take a trip to the supermarket is. Yeah, I can't do that. I yeah. can't wait for five minutes. Yeah. I can't delegate that to anybody. Yeah, nope. and and that's really that's really hard, isn't it? So, so yes. how did how did that then sort of change into what you're you're doing now? Okay, so I can tell you that during my years in hospice, it was. It was pretty amazing that, you know, that I got to do that work. Mm. And it was during those years that I was running a lot of support groups, just, you know, similar, they're, they're, they've got similarities from then and now. And I used to bring art into our groups because I found that people love an art project and I did too. And so I had the chance to meet art therapists and I had the chance to meet art, you know, uh, ceramic artists, which I happen to love. That was right around the time that 9-11 occurred. And I would say that for Hearts of Hope, that was the catalyst that started Hearts of Hope because we made Hearts of Hope following 9-11. And the, the uh, idea was, I went to my, my all, the, all the folks that I knew that could help me. And I said, what about if we made a finished flat little ceramic piece? Not, not the molding, everybody loved that. And that was great, but this was going to be bigger. And so... They said, yeah, we can do that. We can do that for you. So I went into my director and I said, what about if we invite the whole entire community? This, I'd been on a crusade anyway to get the whole community in. And so I said to my director, can we do this? Can I organize this? She said, if you can fund it, you can do it. And sure enough, we did. And we did. <laughs> and so the, the response was so extraordinary. And that's where Hearts of Hope really was born. So it was born from such a, such a, horrific tragedy 
to becoming what it is today. It took everything that I had learned from all of my uh, education. It took everything that I learned from all the visits with all the families I had met who were grieving, and it was able to put it into this activity. And it worked. And so I was able to make, well, I didn't, all these folks that helped me made several hundred of these small little ceramic hearts. And we invited the community and hundreds showed up. It was 9-11, everybody was grieving. It was kind of like what we just have been experiencing with COVID. Everybody was grieving some form of loss. They came and some folks talked, some folks didn't speak. They just sat there. It was comfortable, it was inviting. It was something that people could do when everybody was scratching their heads saying, I don't know what to do, what can I do? And that's where Hearts of Hope was formed. So we started with this colossal community service outreach and it has grown. So a couple of years following that, my husband came to me and said, guess what, we're relocating. And I said, okay, you know, I guess, you know, I'm gonna find a hospice there to go work. And that's when, because I had been on a crusade to open up a community uh, center where all grievers could come, every type of loss, every type of way that people thought that they might find help mm. was what I wanted to offer, even if it was coming in and just painting a little ceramic heart. And so when we moved and I was looking around to find another hospice, my husband said to me, my current husband said, what about that grievance thing you've been talking about? And I thought, how about that? Maybe I will do that grievance thing that I've been talking about. And that's where we formed as an organization. And so we were very lucky. We had, uh, we had community support. We had people. And so we offered support groups. We offered counseling. We offered community service, of course. And then I was, you know, just, I was so enthralled with education that I was able to design several workshops. And we taught those to nurses and social workers and doctors and all about grief, all about what end of life brings in terms of grief. And mm -hmm. so that just was, um, that just resonated. You know, it was, it was my dream to offer somebody a, a place or, or uh, an experience because certainly we moved around mm -hmm. and we moved around throughout the whole state. And, you know, it was just, are you comfortable getting education? Are you comfortable sitting one-on-one -on -one with a counselor? Are you comfortable in a support group? Or do you just want to do something nice for somebody else because you get it, you've had cancer or you've had a loved one die or something has happened and you think, wow, now I get that. More than I ever did and I want to help. So that's kind of how it all started. And that's where we are today. And so we, uh, we, we operate pretty much as all volunteers. We, uh, we have two studios that make these ceramic hearts, including me. I can make them as well as anybody. Brilliant. Maybe not as well as some, but <laughs> as well as anybody. And that's what we do. We, um, we offer it all, whatever the person that is grieving or the person that has experienced something like altering or like threatening. We've, we've responded to every community event since 9-11 every single one. Wow. And whether that's a small group or uh, a, na a nationwide mm. uh, response, like it was in response to the Sandy Hook Elementary School mm. shooting mm. Uh, almost 10 years ago. And so um, it just, it depends, you know, it's, it's an offering of what helps, what is it that you think may help you? And if one thing does, that's great. If it doesn't, 
try something else. And here's that something else mm. they want to try. And that's how it works. And that's lovely, yeah. isn't it? I think exactly like you say, because different things work for different people. And and yes. we all express our, our grief in different ways. And that's okay. But it's finding your way, isn't it? You know, yes. and it's it's offering people these different areas in, in which they can come and and maybe they start with one and they end up working through all three I you know you don't yes. know do you? but it's it's kind of you, you've got to take that first gentle step um I mean for what you offer is it um do people come to you in their group so do you have people that are dealing with a, a terminal illness come to you um or is it mainly the people that are grieving the ones that are that have have gone have died it, it's either um okay. it, the uh we have an overwhelming response by people who are experiencing cancer mm. and so um what we what we do often with uh with many many hospitals is uh i don't know if you're i'm sure you are as a nurse but when a cancer patient receives that last treatment whether it's chemo or radiation mm. there's a bell ringing cer- ceremony yeah. And there are many, many hospitals that say to their survivors, here's a gift of hope for you. And they hand them a heart of hope. And a lot of times those people will then, they'll be on the phone saying, I want to do this. Yeah. Well, this is great. I want to yeah. take this to my neighborhood. Or I want to take this to my company or wherever they may want to go. But because of what they've been through and what they have experienced, that personal, you know, it, it, I believe that is the, um, that's the formula. Mm. If you felt it, and you maybe were oblivious to it prior, now you get it. And mm. so now you want to reach out and help somebody else. Yeah. We have an overwhelming population of people who are survivors of life-threatening illness and continue mm. to live with these journeys of, of, um, of illnesses that are grave and life-threatening. And, and then on the, you know, another bulk of what we do uh, is community-based. And so if a community has experienced a tragedy, then that community may say, wait a minute, or, or that, you know, that community may be an actual geographic location mm. or maybe a school mm. or a, you know, a, a university. And so that outreach, that's kind of how our community service piece, the actual painting and decorating these ceramics hearts is mm. vast. Mm. And so a, a school will be approached, let's say, when a tragedy occurs. We just recently went to a school in Arizona who has been creating hope through these little parts for a couple of years. And they have had so many parents of students who have died from COVID that they reached out and you know, one of their teachers said, can you just send us some, some of these painted hearts? And, you know, our, our people need this, our students need this, our teachers need this. And so we did. And that, you know, in a situation like that, that school will perhaps a year later or sometime later say, now we're ready. We're going to do this because now we just heard about this school and they had a bus accident. Mm-hmm. And so the outreach, you know, kind of you know, works its way out mm-hmm. through firsthand and then realizing, wait, I can do this for somebody else. Yeah. And then they do. Yeah. And that's amazing, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but I really feel that when you bring people together that have, have, you know, been through a a similar challenge or or faced the the same tragedy in life, something magical happens, doesn't it? Um, it, it, it kind of, 
it validates what you're going through. You feel less alone in it. The conversations are different and that support from others and that understanding from people who get it is priceless, I think. It truly is. Mm-hmm. Just, just before my late husband died, there was a woman that I worked with. Her name was Joan and her dad died. And I can remember, you know, very busy, working in an office, you know, lots of things to do, meetings to go to. And I remember when, you know, I knew that Joan's father had died and I remember thinking that's terrible. But I also remember that when I was, when I saw Joan in the hallway, that I immediately remembered a meeting that I was late for, turned in the opposite direction and went away. And do you know who the very first person to approach me when I went back to the office after my dentist died? It was Joan. And from that point forward, I have never not acknowledged someone's Mm. experience, Mm. whether it be the pain of an illness or the pain of loss, because to ignore it is one of the, the impact of the person who's experiencing it, you feel that. And it's not like the person that's ignoring it is doing anything deliberately, mm. but it's just, it's so awkward mm. and it can be so weird and you don't know what to say. And then your brain, your brain's going crazy. Yeah. Don't say the wrong thing. And so you just walk away. Mm. And, but the person that's experiencing that, they feel mm. that so deeply. And mm. then it happens to you and you never do that again. Mm. And I think that is, you know, you talk about the magic mm. and I think, you know, as, if you can, if you can, and you can say that things of benefit occur mm. as a result of a horrific loss, yes, I believe they do. Mm. And I think if it's that awareness that you're in a big world, a lot of people are experiencing a lot of big things. Mm. Mm. Don't turn your face away. Sit with them however that looks. Mm. And it can be running around and running errands or it can just be sitting silently on end of the sofa with that person and yeah. saying what show do you want to watch you know it really doesn't have to be a big deal but it truly is that you know I've had so many people doing this work over these years saying what do I do what what should I do I don't, I don't know you know I don't know and I'll just say show up mm. whether that you know send a card mm. um mm. visit say hello ask about, you know, just show up however that feels comfortable to you. It doesn't have to be heroic. It's just that acknowledgement of something big happened and I'm standing here with you with that. That's the magic. Yeah, it is. And that is just so beautiful because we freeze, don't we? And and I exactly like you yes. say, I know I've done it. You see people that are going through something massive and you think, oh my God, oh my God, I, I don't know what to say. What am I going to do? This is really awkward. I'll just go somewhere else or you do and and you're right it is the worst thing you can do um for the person that's in that situation and what you just said so beautifully there is you don't always need to say anything it's 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 you don't have to try and fix them or make it better or cheer them up you know sometimes it is just i'm here and I will sit with you, I will walk with you, I will cook for you, you know, but I'm here. And if you want to just be quiet, if you want to cry, if you want to talk, 
whatever but but that doesn't come naturally to us does it you know we want to talk we want to fix we want to find silver linings um and and say to people it'll be okay (laughs) and and you know what it will be okay it will but when you're in that raw acute grief you know when you have just lost someone you can't see that that that's that's kind of oh really (laughs) so not okay (laughs) yeah right right here right now is not okay at all it's far from okay and and it's acknowledging that as as well isn't it sometimes it really is so I mean what obviously there's a lot of people out there that are caring for have cared for people um that are gravely ill dying and it's hard it's really hard isn't it it takes everything out of you and and your your life it's it's you know so many people say to me the minute that that diagnosis is is given your your life changes you know um that that the life you did have has gone and and then you've got to try and find this new way and and it revolves around appointments and treatments and sickness um and and you have to look at life in, in a very different way do you believe there's anything we can do to kind of prepare ourselves support ourselves in that caregiving space um that that helps us deal with that in in life i suppose yeah you know especially for caregivers i think that it is uh probably you know we we just talked about this it's the last thing on our minds to say i need help Mm. but if we can somehow push that a little further forward into our minds Mm. because even if you know if if you've got someone that you're caring for and this is you know this is perfect really in a um in a caring situation where, where a loved one is seriously ill, just, you know, you're online anyway. Look up an online support group. You don't have to talk. You can just read. You can just learn. But the more that you can take a situation like that that feels so hopelessly out of control, hopelessly abnormal, you're hopelessly not prepared, the more you can educate yourself. And education comes in stories you know, to, to find out, wait a minute, if somebody else is feeling the same way that I am, that helps. Or maybe you're one of those folks that just needs the education about what is this disease actually? Mm-hmm. And, and so they're telling me this is the end of my loved one's life. What is that? And what can I expect? And, and I know in hospice, of course, if people embrace that as, a, uh, as an end of life plan, then there are people to educate, but that's not the only spot. It's, there's so much information out there. And what I have said always, and and will always say, don't stop. If the first one's not a fit, don't throw your hands up in the air and say, I'm done. Say, this is not a fit. And it's very hard to have that, that, um, that presence of mind when you're in what you feel is endless crisis mode. But if you will allow yourself just that little bit of saying, wait, this isn't a fit, but there is one out there. I'm going to keep trying. And even in even if you don't ever find one, the process of looking can be helpful. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would always, for anybody in grief, uh, when a loved one has died or caring for a loved one who's ill, because that's grief too. That's anticipating a loss. In my experience, it has been remarkable 
to find that people will say after the loved one has died, I did this already. How can this be happening again? It's mm. like the clock rewinds mm. back to zero. Mm. And now you're right back into what you were already, you already did this, but now it's back. And so, you know, I do think that the process of just saying, I want to learn more about this. I won't stop. And, and even, and, you know, that I know that helped me tremendously. I, there was a, there was a, you know, so my, my late husband was in the hospital for 10 days. I met everybody and stayed there, met all the nurses, doctors, everybody was awesome. There was the pastoral care staff that came in to visit and they were all good too. But there was this one little lady that walked in one day, never met her before, super petite, even shorter than me, which is pretty short, dark brown hair. She came and, and she was young. She she was younger than I was at the time. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, this is the pastoral care person. She was a rabbi. And she came in and introduced herself. And and I, uh, you know, it was good to have her there. But she did the most extraordinary thing. She placed her one hand on my husband's arm and her other hand on my arm and prayed for 30 seconds. It was light alternating for me. And I can remember that in my grief, my early days, so, you know, I was, I was motivated to go back to work. I was so glad to have work to pour myself into. Every night I went on the internet and I, I was looking and searching for pastoral care schools because I wanted to learn what skill that was that could have a life-altering impact on a person in five minutes. And that searching, and I did find that school. And well, I did, I did learn that you have to be clergy and, you know, there, there was a lot more to it. But the searching for the school, every night for six solid months, every single night, that searching helped me. Yeah. Because I thought, I'm going to learn the skill. I don't know how or when or where, but I'm going to learn that skill because that's helpful. And that, just the searching. Didn't wow. find it. Normal life. Yeah. The searching helped. And so, you know, maybe that's something. Don't stop searching. Yes, that, somewhere. And I think that's a really valid point as well, isn't it? You know, because yes. so many people come back and say, "Well, I tried a group and it wasn't really for me. I didn't really like it." And and you're right. You know, it's like, okay, well, it doesn't mean that all groups won't be or right. meetings right. or or whatever it is that you're searching for. It's, it's kind of thinking, do you know, I'm, I'm going to keep looking. And, and in that process of searching and looking, you discover so much more, don't you, in your reading yes. and your learning all the time. And I think yeah. education in, in these situations, in, in grief and loss, is fundamental because we are not educated well enough on, so. on how to deal with it and, and how to cope and and you know how do you talk to someone that's dying how do you care for someone that's dying what you know what do you what do you do it's scary and it's exposing and it's vulnerability isn't it right there yes. in its rawest form um and it, and it is that kind of searching and yes. you, you know looking for some guidance that that helps you discover what feels right for you um, and, and helping you find your way. Um, something I, I did, you know, we covered um, on the David Kessler course, I just did the grief educator program, which was brilliant, but 
he very much talked about how if you have a a meaningful death how that then helps the people that are left to have more meaningful grief and 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 i get that that's not always possible you you know it's it, it it's things are sometimes out of our hands but do you see that there's a connection there in terms of if we can be open about our death and have the conversations that we don't want to have that are deeply uncomfortable but actually in those conversations that there's there's a an, an element of connection and love and trust um, that can take you by surprise sometimes actually and give you some comfort um you know knowing that you're helping your person in the best way that you can and and meeting their needs and again I know this isn't always possible because you know two parties have got to be willing to have these conversations and 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 I get that that's not always the case but you you know making the the death as meaningful as you can which then goes on to help you I mean I I really believe that nothing you know as long as you care for your loved one and you know they're going to die I don't think anything prepares you for the moment that that person leaves this world um you know I know we've got anticipatory grief and and all that stuff but actually when they're gone that's that's different is it and I think you you kind of said it's it takes you right back and it's you know quite shocking um but yeah in your experience do you believe that having those conversations and and talking about death and trying to make it as meaningful as you can for the person helps then the grievers after the death I, I think so uh, and I, I always say I think so because I, I think to your point a lot of times those conversations don't present the opportunities don't no. present themselves and for whatever reason you know, those conversations are are so terrifying mm. but I think yes if you can have them and, you know I am um, my, my we my husband and I cared for my dad before he died and the, um, you know, as a grief worker, I wanted to have those conversations with him. And it was not his, it was not his thing. No. This was a, you know, old world, mm. you know, macho kind of, you know, framework. And, and to, you know, to hear from my dad, mm. how he felt about his you know, imminent death, it wasn't going to happen. No. But I think to your point of meaning, in fact, I'm sure you're familiar with um, Robert Niemeyer's work because he um, he has a whole body of work, a whole theory called meaning reconstruction. And it follows exactly what you just said, where uh, even if you can't have that conversation, find meaning for yourself. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they're, in, you know, especially with caregivers are such a um, underserved group. And it's such a massive group. But I think that if a caregiver can just maybe at the end of every single day say, I did everything I could. It's enough. I'm going to roll. Roll out of bed tomorrow and see what happens. Do my best. But for this day, it's Mm. enough. Because that caregiver needs sleep that night. Mm. And, you know, and if you can embrace the fact that you've done everything you could and that what you did was enough, Mm. regardless of 
you know, maybe you messed up or maybe you didn't mess up, but mm. it was, it was your best. Yeah. And, and, and however that manifested itself, mm. it's enough. And, and maybe that speaks to meaning because if you can have the consolation of, I did everything I could mm. following a person's death, that mm. could be, you know, and is very helpful. You, you've met through your work, I'm sure, people that have had very conflicted relationships mm. and that makes for a real hard and real difficult mm. time for folks. Mm. And, and I know that um, for those people to embrace the fact that what they did was all they could do. Mm. And a lot of times all you can do is all that your person's going to let you do. Yeah. And, and if, it, if you can come to embrace that concept that it is enough, I did everything I could. And, and even the times that, you know, my grumbly husband that would, you know, I told you that walked up the steps grumbling and then yeah. met his wife with, hi, honey, what can I get you? Uh, that was enough. He did mm. everything. And, yeah. um, and I guess that's, that's where you can say there's meaning because mm. I, I, I'd love to think that every caregiver at the end of a caregiving journey can pat themselves on the, black, on the back yeah. and say, wow, I did that. I did that. You're because saying. I think we just think, oh, we stumbled through. It was horrible. I didn't do it. But the reality is we did that. And yeah. that's pretty awesome. Hundred percent, and I say this to clients all the time. We have a terrible way of focusing on maybe the one thing we didn't do well, or the one thing that we didn't, you know, do at all, or you know, oh, I did walk up the stairs grumbling. So I'm like, oh my god, what do you want now? Leave me alone! And then you're like, <laughs> you know, you snap and you get tired and frustrated, and it's like, what? And 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 you come away from it, and you're like, oh my god, I was so bad at that, and I shouldn't have done this, and I shouldn't have done that, and I should have been kinder and nicer and I should have told him I loved him more and and actually you're not recognizing all the amazing things that you did do you're so focused on maybe the two or three things or whatever that you think you didn't do well enough but I love that you know at the end of every day saying to yourself I have done my best today and that is good enough you know and and equally when we you know come out you know, on the, when our person has died and we're, we're dealing then with the grief of, and the loss of the person and we're looking back and hindsight is a, is a wonderful thing, isn't it? But it's it not fair to kind of look back with hindsight and think, do, do you know, I shouldn't have done this and I shouldn't have done that because you yes. didn't know then what you know now and you're, you're looking at it from an outside perspective and that's unkind to you. Um, and, and I just, we have to remember, don't we all the time that we are doing our best with the the knowledge and the resources that we have in that moment. And it's stressful and it's hard and, and it's okay to be pissed off. Right. You know, it's okay to go, Oh my God, I've had enough. I don't want to do this anymore. This is annoying me. And I want my life back and I want to have fun. And you know, you're entitled. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't define you. It doesn't mean that you're selfish. It means that you are, a feeling human being and that is exactly what you should be doing and feeling and thinking you know because it's all part of the experience isn't it sure is Mm. it sure is and then you've kind of talked about you know searching for for help and support in terms of after your person's died and you've you've given the care 
and then you've got the the trauma of the caregiving and you know everything we've just discussed there thinking you haven't done it good enough and you're reflecting back and thinking it should have been done differently or you could have done it in a different I don't know but you know all the the things that come up for us how can we best support ourselves through that side of of our grief as well is it the same advice that you'd kind of offer yeah, I think so. I, you know, it's not much different. I think that if you, you know, each person individually has to look at the things that, you know, I, 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 call, I refer to it as mini vacations from your grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the early days, you're concerned. And if you have the opportunity, so, you know, it, it varies person to person. For me, it was go back to work during those hours of work, even though sometimes I find myself in the, in the restroom crying my eyes out. I went back and there was my smiley face and trying to do what I could. And it, but but I didn't I didn't know it at the time. But for me, that was a vacation, a mini vacation for grief. And then there were, you know, for other for other times, you know, I I, I always recommend give yourself, allocate your spot for your grief, because then you are now it's you saying, okay, grief, I'm ready for you. So for me, I always found the incubator to be my commute from work to and from work. And sometimes I wouldn't do this deliberately, but I would, you know, I'd close the door behind me, start the car, start driving, and just allow the, the avalanche of tears. And as time went on, as normal as grievers, as normal grievers do, I started to think, wait, am I crying enough? Is this, is this enough? You know, am I sad enough? And I would invite the tears by putting on songs, or whatever, whatever. But I think that helps because it was good. My incubator is the car. I'm in the car. Now I can grieve. And so I would, you know, it, it didn't strike me right away. It really didn't strike me until I became educated about it. But that was like a respite being able to go to work. So for other people, it may be um, meeting with a family member or meeting with a friend or watching a movie or whatever you define it to be to take that but do it rather than um rather than coincidentally do it deliberately mm. this is it this is my hour or this mm. is my 15 minutes whatever it is mm. and say this is it this is it. and i'm recognizing it and i'm acknowledging it and i'm letting it happen yeah and in some crazy cases you're trying to make the scenario where it does but in either case it's more you know when you feel that you're handling it or you're feeling okay I got this. I can control this. If you can feel that this is an active decision in your best interest mm. and you do that, mm. that feels good. That's very empowering rather than being the avalanche. I just can't stop the avalanche. And not yeah. to say that doesn't happen because of mm. course it does. Mm. But mm. To, to have your own spots, you say, here's my spot. Here's my yeah. Time. Yeah. And, and then and those, think, they, yeah. they reach yeah. out and they become more. Yeah. And it is, it's so important for us, isn't it? To have that time. It's, and, and I think like you touch on, we, we need a, <coughs> excuse me, a healthy balance between our, our time for our grief, but also our, our distraction time, our vacation from our grief, our, our, you yes. know, just the, the reorientation of life um, right. because we can't sit in it permanently, but we can't avoid it permanently either. And it, it's finding that time and space for your grief oh that works for you and I think to intentionally grieve is yes. wonderful you know and you like you say it doesn't always work sometimes we're caught unawares and and we're triggered um yeah. but you know to allow that time and space to do the things that we need to do 
is yeah. so important for our healing, you know, and finding yes. those healthy mechanisms of releasing what is within us rather than just always trying to go I can't do it now I can't do it now you know, right. you're boxing right. it up and <laughs> putting it aside all the time but yeah I mean that that's one idea and I, I know you talk in, in sort of um within hearts of hope about cultivating empowerment resilience yes. healing and growth which i love i just love that and it's what i love to help people do as well what what other ways can we cultivate those things for ourselves in our grief to just to help support and nurture ourselves a little bit through the process well if if you're and and i i love that question the uh what comes to my mind is if you're open to doing it, then you find things. And maybe that's your first task. Mm. What am I open to doing? Mm. And so I think that uh, identify that and then do that. Mm. Um, you know, there are so many avenues just based upon whatever a person's temperament, you know, what a temperament may be, or uh, just preferences, you know, think, what do I like? Mm. I had, uh, I, I hear people say, well, I love to exercise. I love to practice yoga. Okay. So that's perfect. Then find a way to do that. Even if it's all by yourself in front of your tablet and you're taking a you know class or you're just doing it because you know, the practice that may be where tears come, but okay, there's your time and that helps. And, mm. but you know, it, I think for me, it goes back to uh, never stop exploring. Mm. Uh, and then never, you know, I, I can't say never stop because this is so unavoidable sometimes, but I think that give yourself a break, give yourself permission. Let, let it be okay if it is not. Oh, you know, that's so cliche. It's okay to not be, you know, okay. Mm. It is true, isn't it? Uh, it is. If you're not okay, you're not okay. Tomorrow mm. will be a different day, probably, or in the next hour, maybe a different experience. Oh, yeah. Probably. Yeah. But it's okay to say this was. You know, I, I work with, when I work with people and I tell them, what do you have, you know, we work on uh, choices and I love working on choices because in the beginning days of grief, we think we have no choice. Life has just now bombarded us with everything horrible and it has mm. and everything that we can't deal with and it has mm. and, and you don't know what to do and you don't, but little by little, it kind of ekes back. And if you're aware of it, the openings, you know, the, the cracks in the, in the horrible get a little bit wider. And so we have an exercise that we work on that asks people, okay, here's your homework, go home and, and say, here's what I did this week. I had no choice. I had to do it. And then, you know, now we've got another part of that exercise is, okay, things that I did and I made an active decision that I felt was in my best interest. So that may be taking, you know, taking a break to hot yoga or, or, lunch for the friend or something. So people will come back and they'll say, well, I had no choice. I had to do this, I had to do that, I had to do the other. And, you know, I can use some of the crazy ones because we did have fun with that. You know, I had no choice. I had to pay the electric bill. I had to pay my mortgage and we would have some fun with that. And, you know, then my question would be, well, what if you didn't? So let's say you don't pay the mortgage, what happens? Well, the bank comes and they take my house. So is that something that you want? No, I don't want the bank to take my house. Uh, and, and that would be how the 
conversation. Yeah. So why do you not want the bank to come and take your house? You don't want to pay the mortgage. You know that's the other part of it. So why wouldn't you want the bank to come? Well, I don't want the bank to come. So then maybe, even though you're kind of not real happy about it, you're going to pay the mortgage. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to pay the mortgage. So you just did something in your best interest because you don't want to lose your house. Is that correct? And the answer is always yes. <laughs> and it turns the whole thing around. And that's where the empowerment and the resilience come from. Mm. Because then a person will say, yes, I had to spend all this money paying for this mortgage, but I really don't want to sit on the curb of the road. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, the choice is there. It just is a little bit hidden. Yeah. And that's where the empowerment comes from. And I found that even if we would, and, and it would, you know, it would lighten things up because we could make some ridiculous yes. arguments, funny arguments, but yeah, it always came back to the same thing that if you really dissect it, then you're going to find you're making choices, even if they're not even active, you're just yes. doing it. And yes. so, um, yeah. you know, once you become more aware and say, yeah. Oh yes, I'm definitely doing this. And here's why. Yes. Now you've got an empowered person making a decision rather than a victim. And yes. that feels different and it that does. feels better. Yeah. And that has a way of eking in too. So that the little tiny ones that you're thinking, oh, that's nothing. Yeah. Become the little more ones and bigger and, yes. and more widespread. And that's yeah. where hopefully the people are recognizing this and saying, huh, I did that. And then I did this and then this other thing. And oh, by the way, I took care of my loved one or I dealt with my loved one's death yeah. and I'm still here. You know, it's yeah. whatever you, whatever measuring stick that you use mm. to say, I did that. And mm. by saying that enough times, you are empowered enough to also recognize that, bring it on. Yeah. What's coming next, I can deal with that. And yes. that feels good. So that's kind of, you know, it, it truly is where the concept of our community service program with Hearts mm -hmm. of Hope, where people, you know, it's such a small thing. Mm -hmm. We are people that don't have a lot of extra time. Mm -hmm. But this one little thing to spend maybe an hour with family or friends to do this one little thing and say, I did this for somebody I'm never going to meet. Good. A little thing or it's a big thing and cumulatively it is mm -hmm. nothing. Mm. that helps us get through yeah it does it does it really does you know helping others and, and giving to others is, is huge isn't it yes and, and impacts us in in so many ways and and I love that and I think you know I I think we definitely feel very disempowered don't we um when we are thrown into the world of groups we don't understand it and and we 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 feel overwhelmed anxious scared um and and we're thrown into a world that we don't know we don't like we didn't want it and right. and, and we can slip into that victim mode absolutely you, you know and we're entitled to right because it's 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 hard, yeah. it's um, hard. it is really hard but you know helping people realize that actually they still are making choices and, and they still have a yes. lot of choice in it. And the little choices that you make every single day, you, you know, that that essentially is the outcome of your life. But you are making yes. those choices, whether they're conscious or, or subconscious. But, you, you know, I think yes. you're right. And 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 that when we start to realize these things, we we can we can see it in a, in a different way. And we we do. I really believe. And for me personally, that there is so much growth 
in grief, you know, because it really, I think, makes us sort of shine the light on on us and and who we are and what we want from the world. But for you, you, you know, what do you think has been the, the biggest learning for you through your grieving journey and everything you've you've kind of achieved I suppose what what has it given to you in life oh it's a it's a big question isn't it Mm. um everything it gave me my life back um which is a big answer but I think that um you know to experience that and to be whole 100% wholly unprepared Mm. and get through it and and have the good fortune to recognize that I did get through something big. I did, uh, I did make a life that was happy. I made a life that has meaning. Meaning is so, I think once you realize that meaning comes back to life, that's a huge key. And so, you know, for me in this, in this journey now that has spanned decades, for me, my life continues to have meaning every day. And I think if I, I don't think, I know it is because this journey plunged me, this experience plunged me into this journey. And then I had the extreme good fortune to have the things that I needed to get through. And whether I recognized them at the time or not, they existed. And then when I did begin to recognize them, I was able to look around and say, wow, there's more. And, and there was more. And, and I know that through this work, the most rewarding piece, the most rewarding part of this work is that to be able to show this to other people and to see that light bulb go off, that yes, yeah, mm-hmm. uh-huh, I, can, I can see it. Yeah. That's, you know, that's as good as it could ever possibly get. So, you know, to say that I feel privileged and feel blessed and to feel that I have been able to grow because of an experience so life altering, Mm. it's it's almost something you really cannot put into words. No, no. And I completely agree. I've never grown so much as I have through my grieving process. It has offered me so much in life and I am grateful for everything on a whole other level and I just think I just love more deeply I appreciate more deeply and I'm not perfect I still get grumpy but (laughs) you know on the whole um it's it's given me a lot that I'm incredibly grateful for actually um and I will always be grateful for I wish I could have learned it in a different way and and Simon didn't have to die I can't change that um but I you know I just I think this conversation has been brilliant Judy you you know it's offered so much hope um for people's hearts and souls and minds and that understanding that it is dark isn't it at the beginning and it's heavy but you you know we can create meaning from these things that there are other doors that open um and we are able to create something really quite wonderful after we've been through something so devastating so thank you for sharing your story um creating hearts of hope and all that you do i will share all your contact details in our show notes so people can get in touch and, and find you 
um, and, and see more of what you do. And I just think what you do is incredible. And we need more Judy Petersons in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel the same way about you, Karen. We need more Karen Sutton's. <laughs> Let's make the world better. I think that's a great idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this oh, opportunity. You have such a, a huge heart. Oh, it's been lovely. It's been so lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. And um, I will look forward to speaking to you again very soon, I'm sure. Perfect. Take care. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening today on The Widow Podcast. If you would like to find out more about how I can help you, please visit my website, www.karensutton.co.uk. I would love to help you find your way forward to a brighter future. So get in touch, let's have a conversation and let's help you take back control and find a more positive way through your grief. I look forward to hearing from you.